Good morning and welcome. I'm Dan Camp, one of the elders serving you here at Redeemer. This morning we are continuing the sermon series covering 2 Kings. Today I'll be reading uh, from 2 Kings um, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, from which uh, Pastor Ross's sermon will be taken. And as is our custom here at Redeemer, I ask that you please rise, if you are able, in honor of God's word. 2 Kings 6. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So we went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. He said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. God's word, it is forever true. Please be seated. Well, good morning. If I haven't met you yet, I am Ross, the assistant pastor here. And uh, we are in a series called When God Speaks, looking at two really important figures in the Old Testament, Elijah and his successor, Elisha. And we are to the point in the story where we're focusing on Elisha. And uh, I know this story that, that was just read looks a little bit more like an HGTV episode than a biblical story, but uh, there, hope we'll see that there's much more to it. So with that in mind, let's pray and ask God to help us as we dive into this passage. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you so much for the promise that your word has something true about it that is not true of any other written work um, in history, and that it is living and active. So I pray that you would help it come alive this morning in our midst and in our hearts. Would you comfort the hurting? Would you challenge the languishing? And would you grip all of our hearts with the beauty of your Son? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1608, world-renowned artist Al Greco began one of his final works called The Opening of the Fifth Seal, uh, based on Revelation 6, where it talks about the opening of the fifth seal. And it's an incredible work where you see the powerful biblical vision of martyrs uh, who bore faithful witness, given their white robes, while John, who wrote uh, Revelation, he is there also looking upward, with his hands lifted high and with this sense of longing in his face. And the painting is now in the Metro Museum, Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. One significant thing about the painting today, if you go see it, is that the canvas we have is only a fragment of the original. In the late 1800s, in the name of improving the work, they cut the top five feet off of the original, almost half of it. Uh, Which would have been, you know, depicting the heavenly side of that story. 
So the painting, you have the exalted arms of John looking up to what? And you have the martyrs receiving white robes from whom? And while it's somewhat understandable that they lopped that section off as Greco was not able to fully finish the work before he died, it's still very sad that in the name of restoration and improvement, the most important part of the painting was taken away. James K.A. Smith commenting on that action of taking the top off that painting, he calls that a parable of our secular age. The sense of looking up, but nothing's there. He and others suggest that one descriptor of our secular age is that it is a disenchanted age. It's a generation where the cosmos has been flattened. And we are enclosed in this box that Charles Taylor has called the imminent frame. We have unhooked our world from its creator and we're no longer captivated or enchanted by him. But reason and self-expression and materialism, amongst others, have taken its place. In some ways, you could describe Elisha's world in a similar way. Israel's world had grown flat. They grew disenchanted with God and were more mesmerized with the tangibility and the immediacy of the idol world. And this series has shown time and again how that's going for them. I also want to suggest that our own Christian walk can be described in a similar way. We, we often live a flattened and disenchanted life with God. While at times, maybe at church or in a significant moment in life, we may be incredibly mindful of how much God is with us and watches over us, but many other times we compartmentalize our faith. We live with this fractured sense of God's working in the everyday, mundane, ordinary parts of our lives. The top five feet of the portrait of our lives is also largely missing. One theologian helpfully speaks into this and says, sometimes the difference between drudgery and epiphany is just seeing things from the right angle. A frame that reframes everything, even the mundane. And this passage is helpful in that. It reframes our reality in a way that re-enchants our walk with God, helping us see how intimately present he is with us at all times. And the way this passage helps us with that is by answering the question, how can we reframe our view of God to help re-enchant our walk with him? How can we restore the top five feet of the El Greco painting of our hearts and broaden our life with him, unlocking A life that, as R.C. Sproul has called it, that is Coram Deo, lived before the face of God. There's three things this passage teaches us about God that I think are helpful in moving us more towards that. The first is that God redeems our sorrow. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us get there a log and make a place for us to dwell there. And Elisha answered, go. So at first glance, this kind of seems like a setup verse, just setting the context for what's coming next. But there's two things that help us see how much God is at work, even in these verses. The first is to to be reminded of what had just come before this. Dan preached on it two weeks ago, the story of Naaman. Um, But at the very end of that story, if you remember, Elisha's sidekick, Gehazi, kind of betrayed Elisha. And he went after Naaman after he left and got money from him when he wasn't supposed to. Um, And Elisha finds out, and and Gehazi is struck with leprosy. 
And so there's this really discouraging tone that finishes chapter 5 as we kind of see Elisha left alone um, and on his own. But we see as we be, right away begin chapter 6, there's hope brought into this story. We see there, there are many more prophets that are surrounding Elisha and working with him. A second way that this helps us see how much God is at work just in these two verses is if we broaden our view out even further. We can't miss the significance of this moment in relation to what had happened to Elijah uh, his, and his depression that he had had just years before. Remember in 1 Kings 19, Elijah had thought he was the only believer left in Israel. Uh, multiple times in his dialogue with God from the cave, he's saying, I'm the only one left. And he's deeply discouraged. But that was then. Now, biblical faith has made a recovery. And an enrollment in the leading seminary of the day, so to speak, is bursting at the seams and they need more space. One commentator said, the school of the prophets has grown from a cave to a campus. This is a picture of Psalm 126, where it says, Those who sow in tears will reap with what? With shouts of joy. As one has said, the image there is of planting your tears. Not avoiding them, also not indulging them, but planting them, investing them, giving them to God, putting them in his hands. And look what it says happens. They shall reap with shouts of joy. Friends, this is deeper than just our tears giving way to joy. It's saying our tears produce joy. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, this momentary affliction is achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. So Elijah's tears in 1 Kings 19 have now produced a harvest more than he could imagine. We saw that produce joy in his own life during his lifetime as he kind of moves through his discouragement and even gets to see his own successor begin his uh, profiting and his ministry. But now we see it bearing fruit um, even beyond his life, which is some of the hard reality of this, isn't it? Sometimes we don't always see all the fruit and all the good that God can still bring from our grief and sorrow and pain, uh, as Elijah didn't either. But what about us? How do we see God at work redeeming the sorrows of our own lives? This is an area of our lives where we can often grow disenchanted with God and lose our faith in his presence and his power when things are hard. I don't want to minimize the pain that many of you are going through or have gone through. Instead, I'd want us all to see the invitation here to pray our tears, to let our tears fall on the shoulders of a God who promises to turn them into fertile soil. The New Testament says that in Christ we can be sorrowful yet also rejoicing. And we may, like Elijah, not see the full fruit of the ways God brings that harvest from our tears, but we are still promised joy nonetheless. So God redeems our sorrow. But this passage takes the work of God in our lives even further. It's not, he's not just working in our pain, but also in the mundane. He doesn't just redeem our sorrows, but he also feeds the sparrows, so to speak, which of course is from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is talking about how much God cares for the smallest parts of our lives. And there's two ways this passage gets at that idea. It shows that God is completely sovereign and he is seamlessly invested. He's completely sovereign over all things. As as we've seen uh, throughout this series, this was a polytheistic culture, if you remember. Everything had a, had a, a deity ascribed to it. The rain, your family, the mountains, the seas, 
and the rivers. And so there's a little smack talk going on here in this story. When his axe head floats on the river, it's a declaration of Yahweh's power over the river. Not even this river can contain the God of Israel. In that day where mountains and valleys are seen to have power, and in our world where science and politics and government are seen to have power, this passage is declaring God is sovereign over all of them. We get caught up, we get enchanted, if you will, by the climate of our society and the issues and concerns of our age. But we're reminded again in this passage that God is completely sovereign over every aspect of our world, big and small. He will never lose control. We can, as Spurgeon said, rest our heads in the bed of his sovereignty. So if God is completely sovereign, then that means he's also seamlessly invested. There's not one part of our lives that he doesn't take the utmost interest and care in. The successful storyteller Stephen King, he has a book for writers he creatively titled On Writing. And in this book, he speaks about the need to cut out anything in one's writing or creation that that doesn't move the story along. He calls it murdering your darlings when putting a story together. And I wonder how Stephen King would grade the author of 2 Kings at first glance with the placement of this story. Think for a moment about what surrounds this story. It It comes right on the heels of the story of Naaman that we looked at a few weeks ago. Naaman was one of the most powerful people in that day. Um, and and Israel's dealing with him. And just think of all the political ramifications of that story for Israel. And then just following this story, as we'll look at next week, there's this invasion of Syria into Israel. They even surround Elisha's house, and he's going to strike their army blind. So there's there's a national crisis just following this. So all these big and extraordinary and enchanting stories. And right in the middle of that is this ordinary story of a group of unnamed prophets building themselves a, a bigger living space in the loss of one of their tools. Uh, Sean, this week, he, as we were talking about this, he said this almost seems like a deleted scene, like one of the extras you'd put at the end um, on a DVD. But what an encouraging picture of our God. We've seen this dynamic already a, at play in Elijah and Elisha, where he'll go from dealing with the importance of a king to then an unnamed, unknown widow. God cares about the most powerful man in Naaman as well as an unnamed bunch of prophets and the loss of an axe And this reminds me of how we often want the Christian life with the dull or disenchanting bits cut out of it. You know, give me the, the dramatic story of Naaman's conversion. Uh, give me the enemies of God struck blind. Give me those all day. But the everyday stuff of logs and axe heads kind of loses our attention. But we serve a God who feeds every bird of the air, who clothes every flower of the field. And God made us to spend our days in rest, work, and play, taking care of our bodies, our families, our neighborhoods, our homes. Tish Warren, she asks, what if all these boring parts matter to God? What if days passed in ways that feel small and insignificant to us are weighty with meaning? They're enchanted and part of the abundant life that God has for us. This makes me think about the Lord's Prayer. There are some extraordinary elements of the Lord's Prayer. Praying and calling God our Father. Asking that his name would be made made holy and great in the world, and that his kingdom would come. And praying that that God would forgive us, and, and that we would be able to have the magnitude of being able to forgive others. 
praying for him to help us in temptation. And then right in the middle of that is the request, give us today our daily bread. I think one of the lessons Jesus has for us in that is that we need to be just as dependent in the ordinary as we are in the extraordinary. Douglas McKelvey, he's kind of captured that reality well. He put together this work called Every Moment Holy, where he's written what he calls liturgies for the most ordinary parts of our lives. He has a liturgy for the morning of a yard sale, a liturgy for arriving at the ocean, a liturgy for the paying of a bill. And one of my favorites is he has a liturgy for the changing of diapers. He actually has two uh, of those because of how much it happens when you have little ones. And uh, I'm actually going to read one of those. And I have it up on the screen. It's kind of long, but um, it it really is uh, stunning. Heavenly Father, in such menial moments as this, the changing of a diaper, I would remember this truth. My unseen labors are not lost, for it is these repeated acts of small sacrifice that like bright, ragged patches are slowly being sewn into a quilt of loving kindness that swallows swaddles this child. I'm not just changing a diaper. By love and service, I am tending a budding heart that rooted early in such grace-filled devotion might one day be more readily inclined to bow down to your compassionate conviction, knowing itself then as both a receptacle and reservoir of heavenly grace. So this little act of diapering, though in the form seems sometimes as base drudgery, might be better described as one of 10,000 acts by which I am actively creating a culture of compassionate service and selfless love to shape the life of this family and this beloved child. So take this unremarkable act of necessary service, O Christ, and in your economy, let it be multiplied in the greater outworking of worship and faith, a true investment in the incremental advance of your kingdom. I love that, the incremental advance of your kingdom across generations. Open my eyes that I might see this act for what it is from the fixed vantage of eternity. That's that reframing, looking at it from a different angle. How the changing of a diaper might sit upstream of the changing of a heart and how the changing of a heart might sit upstream of the changing of the world. How's that for enchanting? That's such a picture of this idea of of having a re-enchanted life, of seeing God in all of it. So what about us? Where are we needing re-enchantment to our Christian lives? How would it change our days and our moments if we recognize the weight of them all? How might we re-enchant the cooking of meals or the washing of ditches or our third Netflix binge in a row or our scrolling through social media, our trips to the grocery store, our moments with friends, our interactions with neighbors? Wendell Berry, he said, there are no unsacred places. There are only sacred and desecrated He's saying God made everything and there's nothing that he hasn't set apart for his glory. We like to often at our church uh, do the first question of the the ancient catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, where we're saying what is our comfort in life and death? And one of the things we say is that he, one of our comforts is that he, God preserves us in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Maybe think about that next time you find a piece of hair in your food or something. But God's intimate relation to our whole life. I think we live in the most difficult age yet to practice the presence of God. We have so many distractions that disenchant our lives. So friends, let's pursue the Coram Deo life. 
Let's get back to seeing the weight of all of our moments and doing life with, with God. Our God who redeems our sorrow, who feeds the sparrow, and finally, if that wasn't enough, who takes the arrow. Look at verse 5. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell in the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. What did it mean for this prophet to lose his axe head? What was at stake in this moment? You have to remember, Israel is only on the cusp of the Iron Age. They were kind of behind the times. They were still a little stuck in the Bronze Age. And so uh, the iron of this axe head would have been extremely valuable. Think of all the wood that you had to gather to build a fire that was warm enough to refine the ore and to shape it and to sharpen it. Uh, In a society that didn't have much discretionary income, especially this poor seminary student here, uh, scholars say this would have been a lot like someone wrecking a borrowed car today. It was that valuable of a tool. So it's understandable why the prophet seems so alarmed. He's facing a prospect of a debt he cannot repay. He's at the risk, others believe, of indentured servitude. Uh, We saw that earlier in 2 Kings. Verse 6, Then the man, man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Jerry Bridges gives a helpful illustration about bankruptcy as a picture of the Christian life. The two types of bankruptcy are chapter 7 and chapter 11. Chapter 11 is temporary bankruptcy. It's chosen by a a basically healthy company that, given time, can work through its financial problems. But chapter 7 is for a company that has reached the end of a rope. They're not only in debt, but they have no future as a viable business. The company is over. The owners and the investors lose everything they've put into it. And the profit here in this story is declaring something closer to chapter 7 bankruptcy. But what does Elisha do? He redeems him. He restores him. He ransoms this prophet. He cancels a debt that he cannot repay. And the debt no longer has power on him. And I love how it doesn't use Elisha's name right before this. It calls him the man of God. Elisha was the representation of God to these people and in this moment. How like our God to shower grace on his people like this. And so in many ways, we are to identify with this indebted prophet. We should know what it's like to stand under a debt that we cannot repay. Look at Psalm 49, verses 7 and 8. How's this for chapter 7 bankruptcy? Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. The psalmist is effectively telling us that there is no one who can rescue themselves. We can't even rescue another person. Why? Because all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Which makes all the more beautiful the reality that Jesus calls himself what? Our ransom. Mark 10, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we see that Elisha is is a type of Christ in this story, redeeming this prophet. And like I said, we need to identify with this prophet here. God's redemption of his physical needs is a warm-up to his redemption of our spiritual needs. We need to declare chapter 7 bankruptcy in our lives. The problem is, though we know this in our heads, functionally, we live as if chapter 11 or temporary bankruptcy is our reality. As Jerry Bridges goes on, having trusted in Christ for our salvation, 
we subtly and unconsciously go from justification by grace to sanctification by works, to growing. And, and we struggle to live out of that reality, our new reality. But like in chapter 11, bankruptcy, the businessman is scrambling in that moment. He has a temporary reprieve, but has to work extra hard to turn his business around. It's this performance treadmill that he's on. And as devastating as chapter 7, full bankruptcy is, there is a bright side to it. The businessman is finally free. He doesn't owe anyone anything. There's no calls or demands from his creditors anymore. He's humbled, but he's free. But as Bridges points out, that illustration breaks down. Someone who declares permanent bankruptcy is actually not totally free. They may be free of their past, but they could always incur more debt in the future and then be, be in debt again. The good news of the Bible is that in the spiritual realm, there really is total permanent bankruptcy. In chapter, in chapter 7 bankruptcy, the creditors are maybe not paid in full. They have to accept whatever is left and given to them. But for the Christian, first, our total debt has been paid on the cross by Christ. As one has said that the work of Christ is like a receipt stamped over history saying paid in full. And Christ's work saves us from future debt as well. There's no possibility for us to go back into debt. And this is a cause of great joy. This is the epitome of enchanting news. And when we fully grasp this reality and, and live out of this chapter 7 bankruptcy, it gives us humility. It gives us patience and grace with those around us, even the most difficult. And we are empowered to forgive as he has forgiven us. It gives us compassion for the loss. In a word, it re-enchants our lives. We live in a disenchanted age. And while this manifests itself often with those wanting nothing more to do with God and, and would rip that top five feet right off the picture, Many more, I would say, are still wondering, what's up there? What an opportunity we have as believers to draw these people to our God. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, we are the salt of the world. This is part of our identity now in Christ. He has made us like salt to be an enhancement and a preservative in this decaying and disenchanted world. And the call of that passage is to not lose our saltiness. Salt in our day is different than it was then. We have now been able to purify salt to a more stable compound that is not prone to decay, but the salt in their day was vulnerable to breaking down and losing its taste and just kind of being thrown aside. So the call to the re-enchanted life in Christ is a call to maintain this, our saltiness. And I don't know many better ways to move in that direction than by remembering and experiencing God again through this passage as the one who is working so closely in our lives. From the depths of our sorrows to the simplicity of our workaday moments, all because of the sacrifice of his son and not in our own merit. So let's stay salty, my friends. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this incredible truth, Lord. You are, only you have the wisdom to say so much and so little, as you do often throughout your word. And so we thank you for this reminder and this encouragement, Lord, that though our sins are many, your mercy and your grace is more, that we can never out your grace. And so would you encourage our hearts, would our hearts be able to arise again this morning 
and, uh, and take up our, our calling to follow you um, as the one who has, has taken everything for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.